Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would be with us, God, as we open up your word. And Lord, I pray you give me strength. I pray in my weakness you would be strong. I pray, Lord, you'd teach me, God, as I seek to teach others. And Lord, I pray that, Lord, your, your spirit would uh, do a unique work. Lord, we ask that you would uh, anoint this time in a way that is of you. Lord, help us to understand. Help us not just to get caught up in the history of what we're looking at, but I pray, Lord, that we would see the main things and that, God, we would have spiritual hearts to hear. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, if you got your Bible, if you'd open up to 2 Kings chapter 3. 2 Kings chapter 3. This morning, what we're going to try to do is we're going to look at a section of Scripture. And, Joy, if you could try to update the... Uh, that's so slides. Let's just see if it will work. It's not letting me do it. The, uh, there we go. It, it, when we look at this, we're going to be examining our powerful and compassionate God. Our powerful and compassionate God. A couple of passages I want to uh, mention to you as we get started. Because one of the challenges, and as I was reading uh, some of the people that have really helped me through the study of the Kings, several solid commentaries, one, one theme that really helped me was to try to identify why do we have this portion of Scripture in chapter 3 and in chapter 4? Uh, because we're going to not only in chapter 4 read about four key miracles of the ministry of Elisha. But in chapter 3, what we're going to do is we're going to learn about this battle between Israel, Judah, and Moab, and we're going to see how God intervened, and we're going to see how Elisha plays a part in that. So we're looking at this, this ministry of Elisha. We're going to continue to see it in the next few chapters. But one of the challenges is, is that, okay, in light of God revealing to us the ministry of Elisha, what is he showing us? What is he showing Israel? What is he showing Judah? How is he reflecting who he is? And I think we're going to see amongst many things that we could notice, we're going to notice a lot of realities about the power of God and about his compassion. Mike read a passage in 1 Chronicles 29 about the greatness and the power of God. I want to read you, I'll let you look at one. I'm going to read one that's not going to be on a slide. One passage, Exodus 15, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. I tell you, I was reading a long time ago about, you read about the sovereignty of God and the power of God. If all you knew about deity, who is the Lord, Yahweh, if all you knew about our triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, was the power and sovereignty of God, and that's all you knew, that should terrify you. Terrify you. But think about it. It's the Christian gospel that lets us know that our God is not only powerful and sovereign, but that he's good. 
He's gracious. He's compassionate. Because power and sovereignty left to itself is truly terrifying. But you read in a passage like Psalm 103 in verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Remarkable picture of the grace of God. So this morning, 2 Kings chapter 3 and 4, and to give you like a brief overview of what's going to happen as we look at these two chapters, a simple explanation is that you've got the Ahab is off the scene. The, the king of Moab has an obligation that he was under through his relationship with Ahab, and he turns on it. He comes against Israel. Well, similar to what we read in the end of 1 Kings, there's this situation where Israel's king goes to Judah's king and says, hey, look, can we go together? Can we go against Moab? Because this isn't good. And they do. Well, in the midst of it, Elisha comes on the scene. Elisha, because he's a man of God and they're seeking the word from the Lord, they call it Elisha. Well, what happens is God miraculously not only provides for the troops as they're moving to come against Moab, but God delivers the Moabites into the hands of Israel. And then we get into chapter 4, and we're going to see four miracles. You remember last time we saw that Elisha, he prayed for a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. And a lot of people have noticed that this appears to be not only in length, that God answered his prayer in the affirmative. He gave him a longer ministry, but, but many have noted that you could make a case that he gave him at least recorded double the miracles of Elijah. And so now we're going to begin to see the ministry of Elisha. But as we do this, we're learning about God. We're learning about his character. We're learning as he is showing Israel who he truly is. Is So as we jump into chapter 3, we start right off and we're looking at the current kings. Isn't that the way that it normally works? The current kings. And the current kings here, as we, as we look at the text, we find that in verse 1, in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, we've seen that there's positives here of Jehoshaphat. King of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, that ought to make you pause, the son of Ahab, horrible dad. He became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, but it clarifies it, though. Though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat which he made Israel to sin, he did not depart from it. It's interesting. Um, you look at this passage and, and you start to see that, okay, here's what's happening. You've got, you know, the king of Judah, positive situation for the most part. King of Israel, negative. And, and there, there we are. I mean, it's going to develop more as we get into verse Four, but notice verse three, nevertheless, he clung. That, that word fascinated me. 
as I was looking at this. Um, it's the word that means to, to stick to, to cling to something else. I, uh, I had, a um, just as I walked out of my office, I had some paper clips that clung to my notebook because it's a magnetic area, and they were just stuck to it. I want you to ask yourself, like, uh, if you were described in a paragraph and your greatest affections were put down within a couple of sentences, how would you be described? What do you cling to? Now, think about it. It's interesting, isn't it? He, he clung, he clung. It, it, again, it goes back to this issue of um, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam. It's, it, it is a picture. We've heard so many godly people, pastors, if you're, if you're familiar with biblical preaching, they've mentioned over the last 20 years and, and the fact that you know we're, it's been going on. This has been preached ever since Jesus uh, came in the incarnation, but the Bible teaches us this, but we worship something, right? We're not neutral. You can't just find the person at work that says, look, I'm anti-worship, that's your thing. We all worshipers of something or someone. And, and here, um, even though his heart wasn't loyal, and even though he may not have personally been worshiping Baal like his father, he, here was a man that was clinging to sin. He was clinging to sin. This is what he was known for. It's significant. So we see the, the current context, but then we get into verse 4 through 8, and what's happening is, is there's this, this guy named Mesha. He's the king of Moab. He rebels, and he rebels against this, this, this promise or this obligation to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. That's a lot of lambs and rams. And he was supposed to deliver it to the king of Israel. I was reading about this to try to get clarity because I just didn't really have an understanding of why would that be. And I thought this was helpful. You know, there seems, there's this idea that he was required to pay his overlord taxation in the form of a percentage of his agricultural produce. And so Ahab's off the scene and he's pretty conniving. You know, he's like, hey. I got a better situation. I don't have to pay this deal after all. I'm not going to do that. So he rebels. He rebels, and now Jehoram is nervous because he's looking out for his people, and he mustered all Israel. He's like, look, we, he's coming against us. Mesha's coming against us. He went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he basically, you're going to see the same terminology we read about prior this just recently, and it says, what did he say when he was asked to go with him? And he said, I will go. I am as you are. My people is your people. My horses is your horses. Then he said, by which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. It's really fascinating about history, and I can't say the, right, the name of the museum right, so just, I'll just act like I know that say it, but the, the famous museum in Paris has got this one... Uh, it's fascinating to me because we just found out like one of the greatest, no one's talking about it, but one of the greatest finds in, in all of um, archaeological history was just found and verified, and it was found in, in, in the tunnels of Hezekiah, and, it, and it, it basically, it supports all of First and Second Kings. 
It's, it's, it's even maybe a greater find than the Dead Sea Scrolls. Unbelievable. But one of the finds in history that is really astonishing is the Moabite stone. The Moabite stone in the famous museum in Paris, and that stone has an inscription on it, and guess who the inscription is describing? Mesha, right here. The Mesha, the king of the Moabites. It, 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 so, so here you're actually seeing what this stone, if you went to this famous museum in Paris, you're reading about one of his encounters. He was a very successful king in the worldly standards, and he often came against Israel very aggressive. But here the scripture's showing us how God intervened in the life of Israel. So we, we've got this scene happening, and when we look at verses all the way down, we basically now see as this develops that they're going to form a coalition. He rebels, the coalition forms, and he musters all Israel, and now they're going to go through the wilderness of Edom to go against the king of Moab. And then we keep going. No water. The problem is they're going into a very desert place. I mean, if I had a chance years ago in my 20s. I backpacked in Jordan with a friend, and we had been on a missions trip for basketball, and I've told you those stories, and we got done, and we were like, let's backpack through Jordan. And we went all the way down to the Gulf of Aqaba. We went all the way to the north. We were all over that place. I've got some stories for you if you ever want to know them. But, but it is dry. It is desert. And so they're, in, 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 they're coming through Edom, and they're, you know, below, way down, and they're going to come up into Moab, and they're in a dilemma. They're in a dilemma. And so what you're reading from in verse 9 through 12 is they're like, okay, what are we going to do? And this king of the north, who is not a godly man, he has some theological, he's the theological statement guy. Beware of the theological statement guy. He's the guy that doesn't walk with God, but knows enough about God to inquire about life through a theological lens. Know anybody like that? Don't point at anybody. Teenagers usually point, or kids do. They're like, the, uh, but here's the danger, is that God desires our hearts. God desires um, all of us. He's worthy of our worship. And so when you look at these the, the stories, isn't it fascinating that a man that was not following Yahweh, you read verse 9, so the king of Israel went with the king of Judah, the king of Edom, and when they had made a march of seven days, circuitous march seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Doesn't that sound like he's just a spiritual man? Well, he's not. He sees the reality that God is sovereign, but he won't dare bow his knee to the God of Israel. There's a lot of people that have wonderful things to say about God, but they will not give God time of day. They do not consider any aspect of their life as appropriate to bow their hearts before the Lord. Yet if you get into a theological discussion, they can talk about different aspects of God. It's sobering, isn't it? Because I think that if you're honest, you can see times in your life where you yourself, myself included, have been hypocritical. 
We can talk a big game. But, but here he is, and, and, and they need water. And I can't spend a lot of times in this narrative, but here's what's interesting. Jehoshaphat is a man that has is, 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 is got some good qualities. He's a godly man. He's painted that way. Is there no prophet of the Lord here? We've seen this before already at the end of 1 Kings. Through whom we may inquire of the Lord. Jehoshaphat had enough wisdom to know that they needed a word of the Lord. Isn't it comforting today to know that um, we gather and we celebrate the fact that as Christians, God has revealed his word to us and that we don't have to go looking for a word of the Lord. The word of the Lord has been given to us. And therefore, it becomes the rule of our practice and it becomes the, the way in which we understand. It's the how we grow in the knowledge of God. It's how we understand who God is. It's how we understand his character. It's how we understand his dealings with man. And so we need to remember that. I was thinking there's so many passages about the word of the Lord, but it's comforting, isn't it? All scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And isn't it comforting to know that this word that we have received that has been handed down to us by the apostles, the word that was given once and for all in Hebrews, uh, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing into the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And, and even the fact that your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. They understood at this moment where they had no water that they were in trouble. And the only way they could proceed is if they heard a word from God. Uh, be careful, because we live in a different time, we live in a different point in time in redemptive history, we don't have to go seeking words from the Lord. God has revealed his word. And so when you get around people that are constantly looking for some mystical experience of hearing some new word, new word, new word, new word, be careful. Because they haven't, I believe, I believe they haven't understood the difference in redemptive history as to what's going on in 2 Kings versus what's going on today with the completed canon of Scripture. So keep that in mind. So, so, so as we walk through here, what happens? Elisha gives two declarations. If you notice verse 13, he's not real pleased with the king of Israel. He says, what have I, have to, what I, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. You know, I mean, I like this. He's, he's getting feisty with him, but it's a boldness and it's a righteous boldness. He's saying, look, if you need a word of the Lord, why don't you run to Baal? You know, he's sort of doing the same thing that his mentor did, right, at, at Carmel. He's basically saying, look, I, Elijah, my mentor, said if the Lord, he is God, follow him. But what have all of you people been doing? following after Baal. So if you need answers, run to, your, run to your little God over here. Run to him. Don't come asking me. But what does he say here? He says, what do I have to do? Do you go to the prophets of your father, to the prophets of your mother? But the king of Israel said to him, nor it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them to the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you <laughs> nor see you. But now bring me 
a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And then you see two declarations. The hand of the Lord comes upon his prophet, his spokesperson. He acted like a divine lawyer. The prophets, they stated what God was declaring to the people. And he said, thus says the Lord, I will make this dry steam bed full of pools. I will make this dry steam bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind of rain, but that steam bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. I was reading another translation, and it said, this is easy. I love that. This is easy. God's not nervous about how to fix this. This is easy. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. Two declarations. You're going to get water. And you shall attack, you're going to win the victory. And you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree, stop up all the springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. Again, this is going to be an act of judgment against the Moabites who've come aggressively against the God of Israel. The next morning about the time of the offering, the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. God answered prayer. God showed his power. And and when you get into verses 21 through 27, what you see is exactly what was declared. God gave Moab to Israel. Two declarations. You're going to receive water. Moab is going to be given to you. And now you continue to see God's hand. A remarkable scene takes place. The Moabites now are understanding that they're coming up against them through Edom. So all of them, whoever can put on armor, anybody that's able to put on armor puts it on. Verse 22, and when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. What is going on here? What most the ones I've looked at believe it's happening is just as it reads that God enabled that sun to hit that water in such a way as to literally make the Moabites think that it was blood in there. But what took place? Verse 23, they're excited because they think something has happened that has not happened. Verse 23, they said, this is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. They're thinking they've already had a problem within their own ranks, and and now we don't even have to worry about it. So Moab is thinking they can go grab the spoil, verse 24. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them, and they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went, and they overthrew the cities, and on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water, felled all the good trees till only its stones were left. And Kiriseth and the slingers surrounded and attacked it when the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him. Verse 26. He took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Verse 27 is tragic. Then he took his oldest son who was to reign in his place and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. 
what is going on? Why would he do something so bizarre? Well, beliefs have consequences. And what did they believe? They, this appears to be, as I was looking at one reference, that he's sacrificing his oldest son to the Moabite god Chemish. This was done in plain view. His, the idea is that they thought that by doing this, it would rescue them. You think, what? It, 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 you know, we are responsible, and many people would say free to believe whatever we want to believe, but be careful because your beliefs have consequences. What you believe about life is going to have victims in your path. Very likely your belief system, your worldview, even in your own independence of exercising your ability to live freely and pursue your dreams and goals, you're not free to choose the consequences of the worldview you operate under. And this could apply in so many different ways. It's like, I think, the, 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 the growing, growing, growing trend. Just heard of someone again yesterday that I dearly love that's embracing a progressive Christianity. What you believe about God and, and how you proceed to follow him if it's false, is going to have drastic effects. And, and we see this now moving to the end of chapter 3. So, so where are we at in this process? Now we're going to, we've got to move quick, but I want you to see what we've already observed about the power of God revealed in this storyline, okay? The first thing I think we've seen, power over nature. God's power over nature. His creation, Right? A lot of people refer to nature in a way to try to almost like evade God. But, but anything we look at and from, from a natural perspective is his creation, his power over his world. And what we see is he can put water in a dry stream bed. He can reflect the sun off the water and make it look like blood. I mean, we could go through the Old Testament and say, wow, this is easy. There's many examples of how he rules over his creation. But we also see something that's important. You remember the Bible speaks of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies. And because he's the God of armies, he has power not only over nature, but power over armies. And so when we read 2 Kings 3, we're reminded in this backdrop of a polytheistic world where there's all these gods of Baal and the Asherah and all these things that yet again, Here's a story in the midst of Israel's history where Yahweh is showing them that he's only the one who has power. He's the one that has power over creation. He's the one that has the power over armies. He can confuse the strong. He can weaken the wise. He can destroy them. And so now, as we move into chapter 4, four miracles are going to emerge in the life and the ministry of Elisha that will continue to show us the power of God but I believe you're going to be excited and amazed and enthralled because you're going to see that now not only is this God powerful, our God, the God of Israel, but he's compassionate. He's compassionate. He's already shown compassion that they needed water. He showed compassion that the king of Israel, one who rejected him, just as he was with Jehoshaphat, he received part of the benefit of the blessings of God. He's shown his compassion, but let's continue. We get into chapter 4, verse 1 through 7. And the first one that we're going to examine is this widow. 
sad story. Verse one, now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. You could read about this. This is actually a provision in the law, Exodus 21, Leviticus 25. If, if, if there was money that be, would be owed, it's allowed for the kids to be part of that payment until the year of Jubilee. There was a year of Jubilee that would happen frequently. And, and so what happens, you've got this, this man who loved God. He died, and now the widow doesn't know how to pay the bills. And this woman is grieved, and she sees Elisha. She's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose my kids, and, and I don't have the money. And Elisha said to her, verse 2, what shall I do for you? Tell me what you have in the house. And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, he said, go sell the oil, pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. God took this lady's jar of oil, and it just would not stop. Yesterday, I... I uh, I was at the house with the kids, and uh, I'm telling you, we're in a stage where a lot of people are hungry a lot. <laughs> Man, and have you noticed that the cereal boxes, what are they doing to the cereal boxes? They're shrinking. <laughs> and Cinnamon Toast Crunch, three and a half bowls, and that, that cereal box was suffering. It, it was down to like this much in there. I was like, wait a minute, this is a catastrophe. Three and a half bowls of cinnamon toast crunch, and there's nothing left, right? And, and, but, but imagine, she's got little. Well, I didn't have the ability to continue to pour cinnamon toast crunch into bowls. It ended, right? It, it, it's, it's about there. This woman takes that one jar of oil, and God intervenes. And she, they bring all these other vessels in. Can you imagine her amazement when she takes the oil that she has, and she pours it into one, there's enough pours it in another one, there's enough. And she keeps filling them up, filling them up, filling them up, filling them up. And all of a sudden it stops. And Elisha says, look, take them and sell them. And you can pay off your debt. And guess what? There's going to be left over for y'all. God intervened. I love this. And, and, and what you see here is, is like God's bigger. There's power here. He reveals over debt, over lack. In his sovereign wisdom, as he sees fit, he is not limited to our debts. Aren't you thankful? Because this goes so far beyond monetary that it shows a lack that she had, but we see this, this intervention of God. Um, I think we can also see that, wow, are we caring for those around us? Isn't it sad that this woman had a husband that loved and feared God, and now she's in a position of need at all? Wouldn't you think that the people would rally around her and say, your husband loved the Lord and you've got debts you need to pay, let us help you? There's a lot of thoughts to think about and consider here, but all that to be said, look at how God intervened. Look at the compassion of God 
and how he worked and ministered to this woman, to this woman whose husband was faithful. His power is on display. He's Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. And so you move to the next one. 4, 1 through 7 deals with this oil and this widow. Verses 8 through 17, we read about a Shunammite woman. The Shunammite woman starts in verse 8, and what takes place here is that not to read every verse in this section, this woman develops a relationship with Elisha because she's a godly lady, and she recognizes through hospitality a way to minister to this man of God. And this woman who had provided a meal for Elisha, what she does is, is she goes to her husband, And she says, look, why can't we provide a room for him that would assist him and be a hospitable place for him to stay as he serves God? And they do it. Well, Elisha is overwhelmed with with just the thought of her kindness, and he wants to do something for her. Verse 12, and he said to Gehazi, his servant, call the Shunammite. And he asked her in verse 13, you've taken all this trouble. What can be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or the commander? She speaks to the fact that she's content. I dwell among my own people. But then he says, what can be done for her? His servant says in verse 14, she has no son. Her husband is old. He said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, oh man of God, do not lie to your servant. You can sense the, the heartache she's experienced. And, 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 and he, in verse 17, but the woman conceived and she bore a son about that time the following spring as Elisha had said to her. Wow, the compassion of God. Obviously, that doesn't happen to every woman dealing with infertility. But one thing that reveals is the compassion of God is sure. It's sure. It may not work itself out in the specific areas we're always longing for, but one reality that we see here is that God is compassionate and God's power is evident. Power over nature, over the armies, over lack of debt and finances, and power even here over infertility. Well, this son gets older, and as you get into verse 18 and you read down to verse 37, it tells the story about this child as he grows up. Well, it tells you that one day he's out and he's with his father and he's among the reapers and he begins to complain about what appears to be at least the symptom of a massive headache, a massive migraine. Something's going on with his head. Some type of medical event is taking place. And what happens? The father said to his servant, verse 19, get him to his mom. Verse 20, and when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. I tell you, what, I found that so interesting. And she, she loved the Lord. She was overwhelmed that God gave her a child when her husband was old, and, and she had given up that desire, it almost seems to speak. And now this boy is dead. And the first thing she does, she knows that Elisha's room's upstairs on the top of the house. And in her mind, it's almost as if she knows the only answers are with God. And I'm going to go and lay this child on his bed. 
Well, then what does she do? Verse 22, she called her husband. She doesn't tell him what's happened. Her husband doesn't understand because he, wouldn't, he couldn't figure out why she would inquire of the man of God because typically this would only happen like the first day of the month, the seventh day of the week, on marked special observances according to Numbers 28 when you might go towards the man of God in specific, for specific reasons. Her husband is like verse 23, why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon or Sabbath. She said, all is well. She saddled the donkey. She heads towards Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel keeps coming up. Isn't that interesting? And when the man of God saw her coming, he sent Gehazi, his servant. Look, there she is. He runs after her. She reiterates again, all is well. But then she gets to Mount Carmel. She gets to where Elisha is, and she's overwhelmed and broken. And, and she comes, and she literally grabs his feet. She grabs his feet. Gehazi, his servant, is basically like, don't you do that. And he's like, no, 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 no. Let her. Leave her alone, verse 27. For she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. He's like, I don't know what's going on. Verse 28, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? That's all is said right here. Nothing else, but he knows something's going on. Tie up your garment, take my staff to Gehazi in your hand and go. He goes, he lays the staff on the face of the child. He gets there before Elisha does. Gehazi gets there and realizes the kid's still not breathing. He runs back to where Elisha is coming. He gets there, he tells him that it didn't work. What happens in verse 32? When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. He went in to shut the door behind the two of them, prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. So many scenes in the scripture, it would be absolutely fascinating to see if you could observe it. And here you get this sense of the servant of God and just desperation to his God laying on this precious child, looking into his eyes, holding his hands, and pleading to the God of Israel to bring life into this kid. And what happens? He got up again, walked. The child begins to become warm. He got up again, walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times. Wow. And the child opened his eyes. He calls the woman she comes in. Wow. Elisha prayed to God for a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. And God, in the ministry of this prophet, he reveals to the people his compassion to this woman and the power that he has over death. And then in verses 38 through 44, God shows power over drought. Power over drought. You read in verse 38 that the sons of the prophets, remember we saw them in three different places. Or was it Jericho, Gilgal, and Bethel? I think that's correct. And, 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 and so those are the schools, the sons of the prophets, where they were. But here Elisha came again to Gilgal. There's a famine. The sons of the prophets were sitting before him. There, there, there's a famine. There's not much food. 
and, and they went out to gather herbs, found a wild vine, gathered them from its lap full of wild gourds, came and cut them off, put them in the stew, I mean, not knowing what they were. They poured out some for the men to eat. While they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O oh, man of God, there is death in the pot. I've had some meals where I thought there was death in the pot. Something's drastically wrong, and, and, and some commentators think that, that there was physical effects that were shown. Like, you know, I don't know. I mean, you could speculate. It's not really good to speculate, but what I'm curious about is, were they acting like they had food poisoning? Was something going on as they ate this, and it was clearly, like, poisonous? It needed purity. And, and what does Elisha do? Verse 41, he says, bring flour. He threw it into the pot and said, pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. God fixed the stew. He brought life from that dead stew. He brought life from that poisonous stew. He brought life from that stew that was harming these men. And then you keep going. 42, what happens? A man came from Bell. My best shot at it is Shelly Shaw. Bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. He's got 20 loaves. Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. 20 loaves, a hundred men. Good news. They ate and they had some left. God shows power over drought. What do we see in four and three and four? Power over nature, power over armies, power over debt, power over infertility, power over death, power over drought. Now, what do we do with this? I think one thing that, that I pray would happen is the question that I think we ought to ask regularly how does this passage of Scripture compel me to worship God? Who is he? Psalm 145, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Today we need to be reminded that God is powerful. He's demonstrated his power in so many different ways throughout history. He's demonstrated his power in so many different ways throughout the biblical landscape. And, and, and not only that, aren't we going to rejoice that he is a God that shows compassion in his power? As one man said, Dr. Marita was talking about the same theme of compassion is where he really brought me into it. And he said, God, he sees the nameless, the nameless, the Shunammite woman, we don't even know her name, but God's aware of her need. I want you to think back to something, and, and maybe you saw the hints of it, but the end of that story in verse 42 through 44 of God's power over drought and how the 20 loaves feed the men and there's left over Reminds me of something in the Bible. Deuteronomy, Moses, God revealed to him. He says, the Lord your God will raise up 
for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. One of the key questions as you read the Bible is who is the prophet that is going to be greater than Moses? And if you've never read the entire Bible, you might just start to think when you got to 1 Kings that it might be Elijah. You might even be tempted to think that, wow, I thought Elijah was impressive, but look at how God's using his pupil, Elisha. There's movement here. You remember when we started, we said the study of kings is Israel's rebellion, God's faithfulness, and the need for a greater king. But think about it. It goes even further. Israel's rebellion, God's faithfulness, and the need for a greater prophet. This is pointing somewhere. I love this because when I look, you look at that passage and you see, as I just mentioned, that in verse 42, 43, 44, go back with me. A man came, Belshazzar, and it, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley. And, and what do we find? 20 loaves of barley, fresh ears of grain in a sack. And Elisha said, give to the men. That they may eat. And what happens? But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? And then we read it repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. I love this. You, you get into uh, you get to this place in the New Testament. Matthew 13, you, you see all of this talk, you can see it developing. They're wondering who Jesus is. In Matthew 13, Jesus reveals to them that there's some that he is greater than Jonah, that 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 he is greater than Solomon. And, and then when you get into Matthew 14 and, and you read this phenomenal passage, then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men. You see, in the Old Testament, we first learn here of the story of Elisha with the 20 loaves and the 100 men. But then we read of that little boy, in Matthew 14, verse 17, they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. I love this because the Jewish expectation, the Jewish understanding of the Old Testament, as they are hearing and as they are learning that Jesus is claiming to be greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon, I can't help but believe with all my heart as they watch him do that miracle, there the feeding of the 5,000, that they have memories of prophets of days of old where God had worked before. But someone greater than Elisha had come. We look at this and we begin to see 
the beauty of how this begins to unfold. I was reading, I had a class years ago, it was on tape, and I waited the entire semester. It wasn't the one with Stott. This one was with a guy named Bruce Waltke, and he was a Hebrew scholar. And I listened to Bruce Waltke, it seemed like 100 hours and four days to finish the class. (laughs) My wonderful procrastination in school. But he was a brilliant man. And I found a quote of his, and I love Bruce Waltke, and he said this. He's talking about how Jesus is the greater Elisha. And he talked about some of the comparisons, and I'm going to get into more of those in the next couple of weeks. But think about it. We see this, this whole picture that not only did Christ reverse death, Christ helped widows in desperate circumstances. Christ acted as a kinsman redeemer to save from slavery. Christ fed the hungry over and over and over and over in the Gospels. And I want you to think this morning, in 2 Kings chapter 3 and 4, we see this unique meeting together of power and compassion. And here's my question for you. In the life and the ministry of Jesus, Where do we see the most glorious moment of power and compassion converging? Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to think about the power and the compassion on display When we read a passage like this, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You mean to tell me that the believing sinner, believing on the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ, and trusting in in his work and not their own, that God has the power not only to take the sin of that sinner and put it on Christ, but has the power of taking the righteousness of Jesus and clothing it on the sinner. The power and the compassion of God. Don't miss it as we study Kings and 2 Kings. Don't miss power and compassion on display in the lives of the prophets, in the lives of the miracles. But please do not forget where this is moving, where it is heading, how it ultimately is fulfilled. What kind of response should we have as we leave today? In light of reflecting on the power of God and his compassion, two passages and we're done. Again, I want to read to you. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Let this be the cry of our heart this morning. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Romans gives us a great place to start. In light of the power and the compassion of God on display, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, 
by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. May we not have divided hearts like the king of Israel, but in light of God's mercies, his power, his compassion, his grace. May we bow our hearts before him. Would you bow your head? Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for how you've intervened in history. I thank you, Lord, that you were faithful to your promise. I thank you, God, that you are showing us who you are. And I pray that, Lord, by your grace, that we would not live with a divided heart. But, God, we would be so grateful that, Lord, we would worship you. The Lord, in light of your greatness, in light of your power and compassion, we would offer up our lives. We praise you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on a cross for our sins. And We praise you, Lord, that his power was displayed not only in that perfect death, but it was displayed three days later in his glorious resurrection. We praise you that by grace, through faith, alone in Christ, we have forgiveness of sins and we experience glorious salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd stand with me. In these last few moments this morning, let's just reflect on how, how does what how is the passage that we looked at today, how does it compel us to, to worship God? How does it compel us to live offering up our lives to him? And uh, this morning, as, as Mike plays, Charlie's going to be to my right. They're right in the hallway. And the reason for that is, is like we, we want to just give you an opportunity if you're here and you're thinking, I need to know more. I want to follow Christ. I pray you'd understand that uh, we would love to share that with you. Maybe you're just overwhelmed and you need prayer, whatever it may be. A lot of us would like to do that with you. you. We trust that if the Spirit is working now, we trust that He'll be working even as we close. And so whether you need to go now or whether you want to talk when we're done, we would love to point you to the goodness and the gracious compassion of Christ. And... Uh, As Mike plays, let's just consider in prayer what we've looked at in God's word.